Radio Real. Real Radio, your reality. wanderings through the literary world. Welcome to the new season of Off the Shelf. We are making a big change this season. We are pre-recording our interviews instead of conducting them live on Radio Real. We hope this will improve the quality of the show, and it may even allow us to experiment with a few new elements. But let's start off by talking about the first guest of the season. Shawna McGuire is a talented urban fantasy author who draws heavily on her background as a folklorist to create rich contemporary fantasy worlds. And she doesn't stop there. She also writes science fiction under the name Mira Grant. Her first Mira Grant book was nominated for a Hugo Award this year, which she came darn close to winning. We interviewed her before the winners were announced, and you can hear how thrilled she is to be nominated. Let's start the grand experiment. Welcome, Shauna. <laughs> Hello? Hello. Hi, Shauna. I'm a big fan of October Day, and when I discovered the series, I binged on the books in maybe a weekend. I'm the person that was buying the ebook and downloading them onto my Kindle immediately one after another. But for listeners not familiar oh. for listeners not familiar with your work, can you give them an overview of the series? The October Day books are urban fantasies set in modern-day San Francisco that basically start from the concept that all the old fairy tales, folklore, folk ballads, all of that really happened. It is a secondary history that is about as accurate to the reality of fairy as Xena Warrior Princess is to the reality of ancient Greece. Um, October Day is a half-human, half-fairy. She's what they call a changeling. Um who has to try and sort of balance between these two worlds when humanity doesn't know that the Fae exist and the Fae think that humans are generally a little more interesting than lapdogs with thumbs. Um, They are noir-style mysteries. I've had a closed-room mystery. They tend to switch genre to genre in flavor while remaining in the urban fantasy wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very good way to put it. It's definitely... There's something out there for... Anybody that likes urban fantasy, you can find that little bit of other that you want. Um, You've you've blended some really interesting classic elements into October's stories, but not necessarily in predictable ways. You know, she's been lost in time, kind of. She's got some murky areas in her parentage. How much of Toby do you pre-plan, and how much of it just kind of seems to come in your writing? How much does she reveal as you type? Um, I actually pre-planned quite a lot because the Toby Day series is plotted out to about 15 books. So there are certain things that have to happen in the order that they happen or they just wouldn't make any sense. Um, I'm incredibly scrupulous about my breadcrumbing. 
which has been really fun because now that we're up to books four and five, the bread coming is starting to pay off. People are starting to realize that this thing that happened in book one is still having repercussions. Um, and because of that, I don't get to go by the seat of my pants as much as I might like to. Mm -hmm. That being said, there are things that are completely, wait, what just happened? Uh, there's a character in book one, Danny. He's a troll cab driver who showed up literally because I needed to get October from point A to point B and had no car. Mm -hmm. And he was not anywhere in the series. He was not planned. He was not outlined. He will not go away. Uh, he is now a reasonably major character. And Yeah, they are. He just won't leave. He's Every time I try to make it, he shows up again. So. Yeah. yeah, he's got a great personality. You That's know? He's good. Got, he's got... <laughs> He's got these great little adoptees now, too. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah, he has a collection of bar guys. Yes. Um, which, also, you you really know your mythology. That's very clear in your books. Um, but you do like to twist them to make them much more contemporary. Does that just kind of... How much of that is... You just kind of thinking in general that that's going to... This is a very awkward question. How do you do that? <laughs> How do you make them much more contemporary? <laughs> well, I actually studied folklore at university. That was my major. And one of the things that you'll find if you start digging into any myth, any folk legend that has more than one generation that ascribed to it is that they change they actually will twist themselves around to fit the sensibilities of the time, the sensibilities of the teller, what they need to be will alter. Mm -hmm. So the modern sensibility is, is largely just going, well, if this story changed from this to this, when we went from living in single villages to living in cities, what's going to happen now that we have metropolises and countries and the internet? Um, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of research. I have a folklore collection that I have been told by several people one day, you know, if someone breaks into your house, it's not me. Uh, and they'll just come and abscond with my entire collection. Is there a specific folklore you, you are primarily dependent on, like Northern European, or do you just pull from everything? I am largely dependent in the Toby Day books on the folklore of the British Isles. Um, and on the, the European folklore in general. And that's because one of the few immutable laws of this universe is that there are only Fae. If there's anything other than the Fae, they will have nothing to do with the Fae because they think the Fae are crazy, which is accurate. Uh, and the Fae themselves are all descended in some combination from Oberon, Mab, and Titania, which means that I can go into non-European mythos. I've gone into the Japanese a bit, into the Chinese, even a little bit into the Hawaiian but I can only do it if there is no absolute fixed creation point for those mythologies. I have to be legitimately respectful of the non-European mythologies before I can use them. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, let's talk a little bit about Toby's character. She's got lots of friends and very colorful friends like her cab driver, but she also has just a sense of being really isolated. She's lonely and a loner, in my opinion. Was she always this way, or was that the result of, you know, being 20 years in fish form? Uh, that was the result of 20 years in fish form. I keep threatening to write a prequel called Strangers in the Court, which is how Toby got knighted. 
uh, because October is the only changeling night in the Kingdom of the Mists, and that is a very big, very strange deal. Um, and if I wrote that book, I think I would have some very confused people, because that is when she was essentially a happy Disney version of herself. She really thought everything would come out okay, everything would be fine. She managed to stay remarkably sheltered, given everything she went through for a very long time. Yeah, she just, it's like everybody wants to help her, and she just, there's that connection issue, which is what a lot of the conflict is in the book, which is wonderful. So it makes it more than just mythology. It makes it a relationship story, in my opinion. Thank you. But the setting for your books is also very important. San Francisco is very much a character in that book, in your books. Um, how how have you have you marked the trails in the park that lead Toby to her to her fairy world, or you know how much of it have you actually plotted out based off of the landscape, and how much of it is San Francisco the the imagination? I've plotted out almost all of it. The thing that drives me craziest about urban fantasy set in urban areas is, you know, you'll be merrily reading along, and this book is set in Cleveland, and you've been to Cleveland, and it's great, and suddenly they're on a street that doesn't exist that is not justified by the setting. Mm -hmm. Or if they're going up a great big hill in the middle of town to see something. There is no great big hill in the middle of town. Um, you do get worlds where changing the city landscape makes a lot of sense because it is an urban fantasy it has diverged from our history but on the whole i think if you're going to use a real city you need to nail down the walls of your city you need to respect the city itself as much as you're respecting your source folklore um with san francisco i work there i spend a lot of time there i have walked out almost all of toby's uh toby's trails same in pleasant hill which is where shadowed hills is located We've done chases up the hill in Toto Santos Park that gets you into Sylvester's now to figure out how long it takes. And we've gotten some vicious cases of poison oak for our trouble, uh, all in the name of research. Yeah, you are very thorough in your research, then. <laughs> um, what do you, you do a lot of physical research, obviously, in, this, in addition to your, um, your library. Uh, what else are you using for your research? Is there, you know, are you are you interviewing other um, folklorists or anything like that? Not at this point, um, and that's in part because I have diverged from the original source mythology, and in part because once you hit book five and six of a series and the whole thing, you wind up having to summarize <laughs> books one through four. Mm -hmm. They're like, okay, so here's where we left the Arthurian mythology, okay, right? And we're going to cross over into Irish now. And about the time you start explaining what the Cobley and I were doing there, the folklorist's eyes are glazing over, <laughs> and then you're not invited to parties anymore. <laughs> uh, is there a myth that, or a folk, a folk tale that you would love to be able to integrate, but you just can't work into the story? Most of the fairy tales don't work in terribly well. Some of them do. Um, there have been allusions to Sleeping Beauty because the elf shot puts purebloods to sleep for a very, very long time. Um, there have been some allusions to Cinderella and the like. Mm -hmm. But the majority of Grimm just doesn't fit this universe. And that makes me a little sad because I love those stories. <laughs> yeah, it's more about... Um, it's more K.M. Briggs territory, really, isn't it? Like people are it is. In, in fact... 
I have the Briggs Encyclopedia of Fairy next to my computer right now. Yes, who wouldn't? <laughs> she, she is that person. Oh, oh, I can tell you. So the state folklorist of Minnesota retired recently, and I got to go through her collection, and I got K.M. Briggs's full, full four-volume Folk Tales and Folk Legends of Britain. Oh. <laughs> you can even this to kill a man. It's brilliant. <laughs> I saw a copy of that once years ago. I've always regretted not grabbing yeah. it. It, it really is one of those books that you only get at this point if someone retires or dies. Yes. Um, and for those of you who can't get a copy and want to know <laughs> how good KM was just as a writer, pick up a hobbity dick for a kid's book. Oh, it's just superb. There, that's very, very bit. true. That's, that's <laughs> my bit of reading advice for the book and book <laughs> That's my book advice for this episode. Okay, um, let's... It's your question, Kay. Sorry I interrupted. No, you're fine. It's up to you now. Okay, I'll take over. So you've been writing for the online magazine Edge of Propiniquity, which I hate because I can never say that. Edge of Propiniquity. Could you tell me something about the tales that you've been writing? Uh, the Edge of Propinquity is an online magazine. It's in its final year now. And last year, in 2010, I was one of their universe authors, which meant that every month for 12 months, they got a short story from me. And those are all available to read for free online right now. Uh, and what I did there was a story sequence called Sparrow Hill Road, following a hitchhiking ghost named Rose Marshall as she crisscrossed America. And that was a lot of fun because I actually got to play with both road folklore, which is fairly universal, and with North American folklore. Um, one thing that a lot of people forget, um, and when I say people here, I'm including every nationality that's interested in folklore, actually, especially Americans. Um, people do tend to forget that there is an American folklore that has grown up in this country. I'm not talking about Native American folklore. That's its own thing. But the folklore of our cities and our streets and the man with the hook for his hand, all of that, it is a true form of American oral culture. And it's so much fun to play with. I mean, some of the things these people have come up with, they're insane. Uh, it just doesn't get enough play. Yes, yes. I, it's all out there. When, when, I, when I was a kid in Wales, there used to be a, a bridge that we drive under, and every time we drove under it, my mother would say, one night a year, two nights fight on that bridge. And mm -hmm. you have exactly the same thing in, in America, only it'll be two blokes in cars. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's everywhere. Right, um, I'm going to take a moment to congratulate you on winning the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer. That was last year. Thanks. I'm the Kidnaps of Australia. <laughs> yes, you already have seven, several novels out and more on the way. So are you one of those insanely fast writers that we get every now and then? Or did you have a huge backlog waiting for your agent to place? I am actually one of those insanely fast writers. I write about three to five books a year. Um, we're putting out three books a year, so I usually have at least a bit of a buffer. Uh, which is nice, and I just spend 
an enormous amount of my time writing. It's what I want to do. Um, I used to think they were amazing, and then about two months ago, uh, I read um, I read a writer saying a book a year is twenty five is two hundred and fifty words a day. And I thought, oh, it's easy then. <laughs> So there you are, you're just writing 750 words a day if you're putting out three books a year. <laughs> I, I could do that. <laughs> at which point, at which point the, interview, the interview stops because Shannon goes off in a puff. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, no. <laughs> I think she's collapsing. I, I, actually, I actually really like when, when other people are publishing books, especially in the genres I'm in, because at the end of the day, um, you, you mentioned that you read through the Toby books in a weekend. You know, even at four books a year, that's three months of my life, and that's assuming that it's linear. It's not. You write the book, and then you rewrite the book while you're writing the next book. So each book represents six to nine months of work minimum. I can't, even if I quit my day job, go over four to five books a year. So having other people publishing quality things in those genres keeps readers interested in reading the genre long enough for me to finish the next book. Yeah. I would love it if everyone started putting out three a year. So who are you reading in the genre? Who do you enjoy? Well, my favorite straight-up urban fantasy author is probably Kelly Armstrong. Um, she is currently bringing her Women of the Other World series to a close. The next book, 13, uh, is both the 13th book and 13 is the title, and that's going to tie off her series. Uh, which makes me sad, but they're lovely. Um, Jerry Smith Reddy's WVMP, she's brilliant, and she's the sweetest lady. Um, the same with Lucy Snyder and her Jesse Shimmer books, the first of which was Spellbent. I, I try to explain them to people as being like, look, they are to most urban fantasy as Evil Dead is to most horror. <laughs> they're just completely insane, gonzo, off-the-wall books. They're great. Um, I mostly I read outside of genre, not because I don't like urban fantasy, but because I already read it all. Um, and, you know, I read a lot of horror, I read a lot of science fiction, I read a lot of non-fiction books about horrible things. <laughs> That's, that doesn't surprise me for some reason. I know, right? <laughs> well, speaking of October Day, though, and I will reread the books. I don't just do it as a weekend because that is a fast binge. I do reread your books, so, you know. Oh, but <laughs> I have pre-ordered the next October Day book, which is about to come out, One Yay. Salt Sea. What can you tell us about it? I'm sorry? Well, Toby is hydrophobic. Oh, hydrophobic, sorry? yes. Well, I wonder why after being a fish. Yeah, Toby is hydrophobic, so I had to eventually come up with an excuse to put her underwater. Um, One Salt Sea is about a war that is coming, and Toby getting tapped to be the one to try to prevent that. Uh, if you read the first four books, you'll see that Toby spends a lot of time working with a woman named the Lushak, who is sort of our sea witch figure. And uh, Toby winds up racking up some pretty major debts to the Lushak. So at the start of One Salt Sea, Lushak shows up and is like, look, time to pay me. Stop the war. So it is very fast. It is, it is very much a run, run, run book. It's closer to an artificial night in terms of pacing. Um, you're going to get to see a lot of people that you may have been waiting to see for a while. Um, 
Toby is finally going to actually have a date with someone, which she's very excited about. Um, it is the only book thus far in the series that I have injured myself researching. So I'm very pleased with it. So what did you do to yourself? I kind of rode a luggage cart down Leavenworth in San Francisco to find out if you could make it to the water that way. Uh-huh. Turns out you can't. <laughs> <laughs> I bailed before I went off the edge of the dock, but um, Toby does not have the same luck in the book. <laughs> well, with that, and it's going to, I've read the first chapter, the sample chapters that come, which I rarely do because then I get frustrated that the book's not immediately mm-hmm. available. But yes, I'm really looking forward to this one. But let's, let's take a little break for some music, which is also by Shannon, who's a very talented person. And when we come back, we will talk about her other self.
evil laugh from Shannon's own album, Stars Fall Home, available at cdbaby.com. There will be a link on our website so you can download it and pay for it, of course. I never got to ask, did you really get a tiara when you were... Uh... I did. You really get a tiara when you win the Campbell, which is why I now claim to be the princess of the kingdom of poison and flame. You know, I stood on a, sta- on a stage in Australia, and they coronated me. It was awesome. <laughs> do they do that for the guys as well? Do they get they tiaras? Do. Oh, how, how very... <laughs> well, it's all the same. I love it. It's a, it's a, it's a circlet, let's put it that way. <laughs> it is. It's a circlet. I, I really was hoping it'd be something I could keep, but no, it's a very nice circlet, and <laughs> I get to crown Reno this year. Um... I'm actually, I'm ho- there are some really wonderful girls up for the Campbell. The the twisted little, wouldn't this be funny part of me really kind of wants a guy to win just so I can stick the tiara on a guy, because uh, I think that would be funny. Well, um, as the song reveals, you're a filth musician, and I gather your albums are doing very well. Have you started you. singing about your own stories yet? Not really so much, um, simply because it is very difficult to write a song about one of my characters that doesn't go into things that you aren't supposed to know yet. <laughs> you know, I, I know why the Lushak does everything she does. I know why Sylvester didn't tell Toby certain things. And uh, it's hard to write any kind of serious song that does not have a, oh, by the way, about those characters' motivations. Um, the way you keep track of the faithful and their traits and plays, you have a detailed, you're a detailed world builder. I think we've established that. I am. Debate. But it says that in my questions. Did you feel there's a difference? Do you feel there was a difference in the way you approached Toby's world and the way you created the new Slash series? No, they, they both pretty much started with me being bored and taking a really long walk. Um, uh, the new Slash... <laughs> You know, they both required quite a lot of reading and quite a lot of calling and quite a lot of researching. Um, It's just that with the Toby books, I was able to take what I had learned at university and a lot of the reading that I had done for pleasure and say, oh, well, now this applies. And with the new Slash book, I got to call a lot of doctors and hassle them a great deal, going, hey, can I raise the dead like this? No. Why would you want to? How did you get this number? Okay, thank you. Bye. (laughs) I should mention at this point that you, when you're writing uh, news, the new series, you do it as Myra Grant. Why the yep. different name? I am Myra Grant because um, basically for the same reason that Disney opened the Touchstone Studio back in the 90s. They wanted to release R-rated movies, but they knew that if they put the Disney name on them, people would make certain assumptions. So you both get parents taking children to R-rated films that they shouldn't be seeing, and you get people refusing to see the movies because, oh God, it's by Disney. So even though everyone knew that they were Touchstone, it was never a secret, it was always a public company, having that different name over the movie title changed what people thought they were going to get going in. As me, as Shannon, I, I do write distressing things. Some of my short fiction is very dark, but there is almost always an element of levity to it that is not necessarily present in Mira's work. Um, 
the stakes are high, but there's not that much swearing. As a general rule, I'm not going to show you someone's entrails. You know, things are alluded to rather than on the screen. As Mira Grant, I'm doing science fiction, medical science fiction, and my rules are different. I am allowed a different kind of, of, of splatter pattern, basically. I've had people write to me and say I would never have picked up feed if I had known it was by an urban fantasy author. I'm really glad you did that. And I've had people tell me the same the other direction. You know, I would not have picked up Rosemary and Rue if I'd known it was by the same woman that wrote a book about zombies and the end of mankind. So it's public because it's not ever going to be a secret. And it's a branding thing. It is, it is mostly changing your expectations by modifying the rules of the hyperspatial setting you're in. Yes, you even had that with one of your beta readers, didn't you? She wasn't reading, um, she didn't read uh, your first Myra Grant because it was zombie, because it was science fiction zombies rather than fantasy. What about your agent and your, and your publishers? What, how did they feel about new names? Are they for it or against it? Or Well, my agent and I both said we'd go by what my publisher wanted. And uh, Orbit, which is my publisher for the Newsflesh books, was actually very enthusiastic about having a pseudonym because it meant they got to build the branding for that name. So they were neither taking any of Daw's work and claiming it as their own. Daw is my publisher, Seanan. Um, nor were they going into it with the handicap of we now have to sell an urban fantasist as a hard science fiction writer. A lot of people have trouble with that. I'm going to take a little break from that and ask you about the covers on your book, on your series. Okay. Um, you've been very lucky with the covers. Newsflash is very atmospheric, and the October Day books are really accurate to the stories. Like in um, An Artificial Night, the candle on the cover is just like, oh, wow. When I went back and looked at it, I'm like, that's cool. Um, did you have a lot of say in what's chosen for the covers? I have no say at all. Then you got really lucky. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, my cover designers are incredible. Daw got me Chris McGrath, who also does the Dresden Files covers and a lot of other things in genre. Mm -hmm. And Christian is essentially giving me, if you take a big stack of urban fantasy books and look at them, he's giving me male urban fantasy covers. Toby is posed and presented the same way that a male urban fantasy hero would be posed and presented. And going back to that setting expectations with the cover thing, very few people pick up a Toby book thinking that they're going to get hot, hot fairy, sexy fun times, which is good because you're not. Toby mm -hmm. keeps her clothes off a lot. Um, Christian is incredibly good about that. He does read the books. He does ask for input. But then it's in his hands and the hands of my editor, Sheila Gilbert, who is also... Very, very good. Um, and they, they very much want the series to succeed, so they're picking great covers for me. Uh, on the Orbit books, Lauren Pampatino does my covers, and she is a sweetheart. She is just a wonderful, wonderful woman, and I trust her absolutely. Um, and with her, I don't really have any input, but she asks me questions. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know that if I was ever really, really unhappy, which I never have been, uh, that she would work with me, but I still don't have cover approval. 
Right. Well, they are amazing covers. They are enough to sell the book, even if you're not doing the Kindle edition. <laughs> right. Um, well, back to me. <laughs> Both the October Day and the new Slash Box seem to have a definite endpoint in view. Do you dislike old men in tales? It's not that I dislike them. You know, um, with the Toby books especially, that series expands and contracts according to secondary events, to things I didn't necessarily think of at the beginning. There was a point where I said it was a four-book series. There was a point when I said it was a 20-book series. Right now I'm settling on somewhere between 11 and 15. I like knowing that I can get to the end. I trust Daw that if my sales were ever poor enough, they were like, we're really sorry, we, we have to stop this, they would give me enough warning that I could tie everything off and bring everything to a conclusion. As a reader and as a consumer of media, I'm really unhappy when things don't have an ending. Um, there was a show on the Cartoon Network earlier this year called Tower Prep. It was absolutely brilliant. I loved it. I recommended it to all my friends. The end of season one was a beautiful episode, but it was a cliffhanger so extreme that as soon as it became clear they weren't getting a season two, I lost the ability to recommend that show to anyone. I won't send you into an open-ended story that's never going to conclude. The Newsflash books, on the other hand, that's a, that's a hard trilogy. That's closed. That's done. I may do other stuff in the world. The world is open-ended. But the characters I've been kicking around in, in the Newsflash trilogy, you know, Feed, Deadline, and Blackout, those characters are done. Thank you very much. We've set up landmines. If you come anywhere near us, we're turning you into jam. <laughs> and uh, I think that's fair. Um, this year, because of the Newsflash series, you were nominated for a Hugo Award. How did that feel? Yes. <laughs> um, I was, so, I'm a girl. Um, people figure that out pretty quick once they either meet or hear me talk. And when I was a kid, I was told girls can't write science fiction. Girls are not allowed to write science fiction. Um, James Tiptree was writing as a man because girls can't write science fiction. Anne McCaffrey buried her science fiction series under fantasy until people were so deep in it that she could go, ha ha, gotcha, because girls can't write science fiction. No, and I, so it I was always a very totally with that. James Tiptree. I actually... James Tiptree just picked, picked the name around that. She was, she was quite embarrassed when she realized that people had when she no I wouldn't say she was embarrassed she was shocked when she was, when she found out there was so much sexism about it she was, um, yeah and as for as for um, Anne McCaffrey Dragon, Dragonfly was first published as science fiction just because she liked and she still likes um, fantasy elements it doesn't doesn't mean she was trying to slip it in. It just means that she likes writing. She likes fantasy animals. I don't okay. necessarily think she's trying to slip it in, but when I was getting all of this, it was marketed very much as this is fantasy. It was presented as this is fantasy. All the covers and all that. Fantasy all covers. All the covers. Are 
if I pull out my editions of those books from that time, the spines say fantasy. Well, because my my editions all have science fiction on the cover. Did you have the British or American edition? Yeah, yeah, that's I think also the thing. I mean, all y'all had Diana Wynne Jones, and she was doing science fiction at a time when it would never have been able to play over here. Um, so being nominated for a Hugo was kind of like, I am asleep, I'm going to wake up, and I still will not be allowed to write science fiction. <laughs> no, you will. I scream. I've, in fact, well, everyone, I think, this year is, is a woman in the Hugos and that. Um, is, uh, all but one. Who's, who's the man? My mind's gone blank. Um, Ian McDonald, The Dervish House. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, yeah. I've now, read, yeah. I've read all the women, which tells you something. <laughs> the interesting thing is this is the first female-dominant best novel slate since 1979. Good company, then. Yeah, it's, it's sort of amazing. Some new names coming up as well. That's always good to see. Mm-hmm. There are two debut authors. Um, I'm considered a debut because it was my first Mira Grant book on this year's ballot. There's um, there's me for Feed, and then there's N.K. Jemsen for The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms. And they're both Orbit books, too. So the first time Orbit gets someone on the Hugo list, it's two books in the same category in the same year, uh, which is both cause for celebration and a bit like, well, heck, the office can't just throw itself wholeheartedly behind one person. So that was kind of fun to watch. We're seeing a lot more fantasy showing in the Hughes than we used to. Mm-hmm. Way back when. Um, I, I'm a bit old school about that. I go, that's fantasy. <laughs> I, I like fantasy. <coughs> they've got their own awards, sure. Simon, dear, questions? Okay, questions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right, I see a news flash stories as science fiction rather than horror. Um, yeah. Why isn't it horror? Why is it science fiction? Um, what, what do you mean it's it, it kind of turns out that I'm not as good at writing long-form horror as I hoped to be, because I did set out to write a horror novel. <laughs> but my... I know, I know. My big fiction addiction is why porn. I want to know why. You know, I'm like that five-year-old. Why is the sky blue? Because of atmospheric refraction. Why? Because ice crystals in the upper atmosphere prism the light. Why? Because that's what prisms do. Um, and I will keep asking why until someone slaps me and says, because. Um, with, with horror, you show entrails. With science fiction, you show economics. Um, I read a book earlier this year, I read a lot of books, called Snow, which was published by Leisure Horror. And it was actually a very good book. It's a great romp. It's a lot like Harry Knight's old novels. Um, I would put it in a stack with Carnosaur and the Fungus and not worry. And as I was reading it, I realized that the reason I write science fiction and not horror is this book presented horrible ice creatures that came in on the wind and took over people's bodies and then ate people, which is great. 
I would have stopped having seams of people's entrails on the snow after Chapter 2 and switched to the government lab that was dissecting ice creatures so that we could talk at length about condensation of water and the hybrid intelligence of neural patterns found in clouds. And it would have been twice as long and seven times as clinical. Um, and yeah. that's where the border. Yes. And you, you don't have to have an explanation for it here. All you need is for things to happen. Mm -hmm. Now, they do have to make a certain amount of sense, but they don't have to make Earth sense. You know, in a horror movie, if giant carnivorous carrots are chasing people, you don't need to know why. You just need to know what can kill a carrot. Yes. Yes, yes they have to be internally consistent rather than... Exactly. Rather than consist with the universe as we know it. <laughs> um, so, uh, so what caused the switch? Well, why did a folklorist become interested in virology? Because newsflash isn't about zombies, it's about virology. It is. You caught me. Um, I don't think anyone in the world is one thing. You know, the, the thing about fiction is it has to be simpler than real life. One of my best friends is an award-winning physicist, has a laser on a mountain, was helped with her homework by Robert Feynman, and taught herself Scotch Gaelic for fun. Um, and, you know, all of these things that, that just don't make sense from a character-building perspective. In the real world, I love anything with a structure, but I've always been fascinated by viruses and fungi and parasites and all of these other kind of why are you touching that your little girl go play with a Barbie thing. And I just wanted to play with viruses for a little while. Um, I've always been all over the genre map. The only really unifying factor is that if there's not a character for me there that I love, I can't write it. I've, I've got to say, I'm really glad you did. I've read so many zombie books, well, too many zombie books, in which they're just zombies because there's a disease, and that's, mm -hmm. the, that's the totality of the explanation. You took it apart and found out why it worked, and I'm, I'll be forever grateful to you. You have done a great service to zombie kind. Thank you. <laughs> now, I'm not an expert on American politics, though I pretend to be. Um, but I do think you could have written feed you, that you could not have written feed before September the 11th. It reminded me of the Tom Robbins quote that if you want to control a population, don't give it social services, give it a scary adversary. How yeah. did your personal politics I, influence your tale? So my personal politics are very odd because I, I don't tend to study things unless I think I can impact them in some way. I do think that one of the greatest disservices we do to people ever is telling them that things are scary and that things are hard. Not everything is easy. Not everything is safe. But if I say to you, this book is hard to read, you won't like it, I'm setting the expectation that the book is hard. If I say to you, this place is scary, I'm setting this expectation that the place is scary. We have um, a new security system here in the United States in our airports that are full-body scanners. There has been nothing published on how much radiation they're putting out. 
There has been no external safety testing. They have given instructions to the TSA agents that if you choose to opt out of the full body scan, they should touch parts of your body that no one gets to touch on me without buying me dinner first in an intrusive way to herd you into these scanners. As a, as a horrible experiment on someone who didn't deserve it, before going into one of the scanners, I said, I think I might be pregnant. Should I go through this? And was immediately pulled out and patted down. Uh-huh. And that's not okay. And they're not making us any safer. They're making us more afraid. Because if you need to see me naked before I can enter the airport, clearly there is something really, really scary in that airport. Um, And that is kind of where my personal politics came in. I don't think that that's a fair thing to do to people. It is fair of me to say, if you come to visit, hey, there are rattlesnakes where I live. So if you hear this noise, I want you to stop, look around. If you see something that looks like this, move away from it. If you don't see anything, go back the way you came and keep going until the rattling stops. There's no need to be scared. It's just a rattlesnake. Worst it can do is bite you. We have anti-venom. And people don't think that way anymore. Mm. Yes. Um, do you see this as a post-9-11 thing? I see it as a post-9-11 thing, but I also see it as a modern world thing. We've been doing it for years. The news feeds on frightening people. Um, there were... Hmm? Something I find myself saying a lot is that, um, that the world hasn't become a, a, a global village, it's become a global inner city. When we switch on the TV, we see we see the worst of, of mankind all around us. That's what, that's what yeah. we see. We don't see the real and world. We, want... we just see the worst all the time. Yeah, and people want to believe the scary. Yeah. Um, there has never been a confirmed case of candy at Halloween being shipped, having been tampered with, and containing razor blades of poison. There have been a couple of sick individuals who would put something nasty in a popcorn ball or would try to slit a candy packet, but those are pretty evident, and most kids are pretty smart, even when sugar is involved. But because that urban legend keeps circulating, oh no, your razor in the candy, oh no, and because people are scared, trick-or-treating gets a little less central every year in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they speak the full clause. Yeah. It's actually really sad. Um, when I was a kid, I, we would literally map out the neighborhoods, where's the good candy. We had battle plans to yes. bring home sacks upon sacks of chocolate. And yeah. now I'm lucky if I can eat trick-or-treaters in a year. It's um, I I saw a, I saw a um a survey saying showing in the UK of uh, how how far children wander from home. I, I think um seven or eleven, and in the nineteen in the nineteen forties they were going twenty miles from home. They get on their bikes, they'd start, and they'd be off, or they catch the train go down, and every generation just went down and down, and now it's, you know, you're lucky if you see them a mile from home. This is just fear. 
That's yeah, what it is. It is. Yeah. When I was a kid, you know, my my parents <laughs> wouldn't see me between the hours of of um well after tea, half five until until it got dark. That, that would be it. They might they might stick their head out and shout and I'd come if I was within range, but that that would be it. There was very little supervision because there were people around to supervise me. Headline, the second of your newsflash series came out in May. Seems like I had it on order for years. I made the mistake of ordering it before I had finished feed and can attest to the second book's description on Amazon and a huge spoiler for people who have not finished the first book. Listeners, don't make that mistake. Shona, can you tell us something about... Or should I call you Myra? Could you tell us something about Deadline that won't, won't spoil the first book? There's lots and lots and lots and lots of virology. Um, also epileptic teacup bulldogs. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mahir, who was a minor character in the first book, uh, he is a blogger from London, actually becomes fairly central and shows up on screen, which made me very happy because I love Mahir. He is the sanest person in that cat. I agree Now, the third book, when is it due? I, I suspect we're in for a change of narrator again. Can you reveal anything? Um, the third book is due out in May of 2012. And uh, it is about 450 pages long, 150,000 words. There are lots of letters in it. Um, I think the letter E occurs more often than any other single letter. Right. I believe you have a new series out called Encrypted, and it sounds like a lighter and fun read. What can you tell us about that? Encrypted is going to be starting up in March of 2012 from DAW. Um, it is about cryptozoology. It's about a family called the Prices who are sort of a cross between Steve Irwin the Crocodile Hunter and Van Helsing. Their job is both the protection and preservation and occasionally the extermination or removal of cryptid species, which are anything that has not been proven by science. I'm going to be changing narrators every couple books, which is going to be a lot of fun, and it's because the family is very large, they're not all in the same place. It gets to be a little lighter and sillier, which is nice. The first book focuses on Verity, who fights dark, the forces of darkness uh, through the epic martial art of Latin ballroom dance. Oh. Always because a good choice. Once you've, been, once you've been kicked in the head by someone wearing five-inch heels, you know you've been kicked in the head. <laughs> is there anything else you're working on these days? Um, I've got a couple of YA series that I'm working on that we, we haven't sold anywhere yet. Um, I've got Sparrow Hill Road. I'm actually working at turning that into a full-length book because I would, would like to be able to put it out in a more permanent form than a webzine. Um, a lot, a lot of short fiction. Um, I have a, an ongoing superhero serial called Velveteen Versus, which is about a superheroine versing everything, basically. And I've got a couple of those that I'm working on. Um, Series-wise, the next thing I'm planning to do as Mira Grant is about tapeworms. 
genetically engineered tapeworms. I'm very excited about the Parasite book. Uh, no one else is excited because I tend to talk about what I'm working on over dinner. And uh, having me spend entire meals explaining internal parasitism and fecal oral transmission routes and all of those, it's, it's not pretty. It's not fun for anyone. <laughs> and they wish you'd go back to folklore, don't they? <laughs> They really, really do. Um, a couple of years ago, I became absolutely obsessed with the hemorrhagic fever theory of the Black Death. And there was about an eight-month period where it was impossible to get through a meal without me just piping in with, let me explain the Dove Coast in England. <laughs> well, on that note, <clears throat> we will go ahead and call this interview done and thank Shannon and Mira for being our guests today. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you. Currently in the United States, one out of every 165 children will be affected by autism. With the help of celebrities and recent movies on the subject, most of us are aware of autism. Some even understand that it is a spectrum of disorders characterized by abnormal social interaction and limited communication, ranging from extremely mild to complete incapacitation. However, awareness does not necessarily mean acceptance. Hello, I'm Philip Norville Joe Carroll, staff editor at Flying Island Press and lead editor of the Autism Acceptance Issue. This is especially important to me because my seven-year-old son was diagnosed with autism shortly before his second birthday. In this issue, we present a spectrum of stories crossing many genres, from literary fiction to science fiction, to fantasy, mystery, alternate history, and even psychological horror. These are stories which show people with obvious genius and those who remain a closed mystery. Others, you will wonder, who is the character affected? The stories show love, confusion, discovery, and the pain of losing a partner, and the fear of losing a child. In August 2011, Flying Island Press will release its first benefit issue, Pieces of Eight, Autism Acceptance, available in Kindle, iPhone, and other electronic reader formats. Audio will be released in September 2011. Come by our website, at flyingislandpress.com or search for us on Amazon or barnesandnoble.com. Well, that was Shauna Maguire. And she really did come with an whisker of winning the Hugo. We will include links to her site, her works, and other information in our show notes. Now let's mention another book. It's September, and many of you will find yourselves thinking of the events of 9-11. It's now ten years since that event. One witness who was deeply influenced by it was Artie Van Wy. Soon after it happened, he quit his job to tell people about that day in September. And through his e-book of that name, he continues to do so today. You can find Artie's ebook on Amazon or check out his Facebook page to find out more about him and his work. We will link to both in our show notes. And now that's it for this show. 
Yes, thanks for listening. That was Off the Shelf, produced by Kegia Garardi and Simeon Beresford for Radio Real. The introductory music was 1500 Tons by Burning Babylon from their album Stereo Mashup. We leave you with this piece, Hagaton 14, by Eternal Jazz Project from their album Gratis Jazz. Both songs are on the Magnitude label. You can learn more about Magnitude and their artist at the website magnitude.com. The show is licensed under a 2.0 non-derivatives creative common license.